Well, in the heat of the summer, in July of 1961, a man stood in a white short sleeve button-down shirt, adorned with a thin black tie, and he stood before a group of men. Now, these men that he stood before were a group of working professionals. They were veterans in their business. And he picked up a 14-ounce object, and he said to them, Gentlemen, this is a football. The man's name was Vince Lombardi, and his audience, the Green Bay Packers. They just won the NFL's Western Conference Championship a few months prior, and that was a huge deal in a place like Green Bay. They hadn't won that game since 1944. So why would he do this? Why begin training camp here? Why would he hold up a football? He's speaking to a group of experts in their field. These guys are seasoned experts. They're at the the top of their game. They just got off a championship, and they've been doing this for years. Well, he did this because he understood the basics. That to remain at the top, you cannot forsake the foundation, the fundamentals. And they began that season, that next season of football, they began with the fundamentals. Page one of the playbooks, block, run, and tackle. Well, there's something that's true for you and I in this vein. You and I need the fundamentals, the basics. You see, in this Christian life, we must maintain the fundamentals. No matter how old you are, no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how long you've been part of a church, no matter what your gifting might be, we do not graduate until heaven. In some ways, a message like this will take us this morning back to those early days. Those days when we came to saving faith, those early days of learning to walk with the Lord. Our text this morning takes us to these fundamentals. Matthew chapter 1, verse 14. And what we'll do this morning is we'll return to three basics of the Christian faith. Now, some will inevitably respond, you know, I've already heard this. I know this message the temptation will be to tune out. Well, don't do that because you need the basics. And if this is you this morning, just consider our first point. It has to do with humility. It's a bold humility, and it's where we begin this morning in verse 14. We begin with a basic of our faith, and that is a bold humility. Those two words, by the way, aren't mutually exclusive. They actually go together, and we'll see them in our text this morning. I want to begin a few verses back in Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. It's where we were last week in our text, and this helps to set the scene or set the stage for today's message. Verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the table of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer but you are making it a robber's den. And now we begin in verse 14. 
And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise for yourself? And he left them and went out of the city of Bethany and spent the night there. Well, in verse 12, we saw this last week. It's where we began today. Jesus reacts in a holy zeal. He enters Jerusalem and he overturns the tables of merchants and money changers. When he came into the city that day, he went right to the temple. And what he saw there was not worship as God had designed it, but holy, or I'd say unholy, desecration. The place had become a commercial enterprise. And he's driving out these merchants. He's overturning tables. He's spooking animals. You can imagine these, these angry hagglers and these greedy merchants. They're, they're making a beeline for the exit. And as they melt away, others appeared. The blind and the lame, they come to Jesus in the temple, and he heals them. This may be an unusual sight on the temple grounds. Back in the Old Testament, when God gave the nation his law, there were certain rules about how close certain people could come to the holiness of God, to those places where God dwelt or where God resided. In the Old Testament, it would have been the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. Now it should have been in the, the temple with the holy of holies and the holiest place. Leviticus 22 verse 22 says it this way, those that are blind or fractured or maimed or having a running sore or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord nor make of them an offering by fire on the altar of the Lord. So if the religious leaders of the time were abiding by this, they were keeping handicapped people at, at arm's length from the temple and from worship. But things are changing. A lot's been changing in the ministry of Jesus, especially among the Jewish religion. Now God is serving them. In our text, Jesus heals them. The blind would go home that day. They would behold the beauty of the temple. The lame would walk back through her gates. And as Jesus had done throughout his ministry here in the final days, he's, he's healing those who are broken, those who come for healing. He heals the humble. And for all the concern that's been raised about ritual purity and contamination and spotlessness, here is Jesus. He is the chief priest. He's the priest above all other priests. And he is greater than every other priest. And he's greater than the priesthood. And he's greater than the temple. And as he goes to cleanse the temple, he delivers those who are broken. It almost feels like, in light of last week, now we're getting somewhere with this temple business. 
perhaps the most contact throughout his entire ministry has been with these people. Those who were needy and broken. The humble who know they have a problem, who know they have a need. These are the type of people God delights in helping. Notice who's not around at this point. The merchants. The merchants, their hands were too full for a person like Jesus. The religious leaders, their hearts were too filled with their own religion for a person like Jesus. But the humble, the humble remain. We see in verse 14, the blind and the lame are there. In verse 15, there's children. Matthew's gospel, as we've traveled through it, has elevated children time and time again. Back in chapter 18, verse 33, Jesus points to children. Truly I say to you, unless you are converted to become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We learn there that that a humble trust is needed to enter God's kingdom. A chapter later, in chapter 19, verse 14, the disciples would hinder children from, from coming up to Jesus. And Christ replies, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Again, God reserves the kingdom of heaven for the humble. Jesus points to children to imitate. He's telling adults to imitate children, in in a sense. You know, many parents hope that their, their children find good role models. That's important to us. I think we're familiar here in the States with the the Big Brother program. This is a way for for children to have a a good role model or a mentor or an example in their lives. But we recognize here that we also have a lot to learn from children. Many adults could benefit from a little brother program. Just to learn about simple trust and humility. And Jesus says we can learn a lot about the kingdom of heaven from them. So at this point, if we are in this account in Matthew 21 and we're standing in this temple court and we're looking around, what do we see? We see overturned tables, probably stubble and feathers covering the ground of the temple court. Maybe there's a few wandering sheep here and there, lost without their owners. Quite possibly, the disciples are there. We definitely see Jesus. There's the blind and the lame and the children. The humble are coming to Jesus. And they're coming to him boldly. They know they have a problem and they know that Jesus can heal. Remember, society was keeping them at at a distance, keeping them at arm's length from these type of things. I mean, just go back with me to that moment when you came to faith in Christ when you first came to understand the the power of God and his immensity and his majesty and his glory. Remember when you came to understand who you were and your weakness and your need and your unholiness and this separation between you and God. You see, your conversion, it was birthed in humility. True conversion is birthed in humility. And it does take a certain boldness to approach God when you realized who you were and who God is 
Do you remember how humbling it was early on to, to, to realize that you were a sinner? To say that out loud, to confess that to God, and to surrender everything to his lordship, to say, Jesus, you're a king, and you can have it all. You can have my job and my family and my, my, my money and my time. It takes humility to do that. It's been said that, that God cannot fix what is not broken. And if that is true, this maintenance that we need, even in our time, even after walking with the Lord for X amount of years, if that is true for the ongoing repair that we need, we need humility. Presently, return to that. Return to the basics. Return to humility. Well, secondly, another basic of the faith would be praise. And in verses 15 through 17, there's a grateful praise taking place. In fact, in verses 15 and 16, we see quite a contrast between two groups with two responses to Jesus. The chief priests and the scribes, they saw the wonderful things that Jesus did. I assume Matthew means the healings that took place in verse 14. I think it's a little humorous if he also meant verse 12, the the whole destruction of the marketplace. Uh, Surely Matthew at least knew that was a wonderful thing. But he at least meant the the, the lame walking and, and the blind seeing. Those were wonderful things Jesus did. And the chief priests and the scribes, they witnessed this. The chief priests were members of the the high Jewish council that was called the Sanhedrin. This group made a lot of big decisions, religious and political. However, since Rome came along and occupied Israel, they were prevented from putting people to death. That was the job of Rome, which explains why the Jewish leaders partnered with Rome for the crucifixion of Jesus. They needed Rome's help. Now, these chief priests are depicted as enemies of Jesus. Back in chapter 16 and again in verse 20, Jesus predicted that this group would be involved in his death. Mark records that when they heard the words of Jesus as he's cleared the temple, they began seeking how to destroy him. Again, these are the kinds of thoughts that people like Al Capone have, not religious leaders. They are not a good group of people. As we find them in the Gospels, they're often palling around with a group called the scribes. We see them that way in this verse. The job of the scribes was to take the law, the Old Testament law, and transcribe it, to study it, to write commentaries on it. And all that is good. That's awesome, especially in a time when many were illiterate. So to have these things communicated and taught, to have the Word of God recorded and and copied again, all those things are good. But the problem became traditions. They would create tradition upon tradition and put that on the same level as the Word of God. Back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus spoke of them and he said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying not even these guys who are at the pinnacle of holiness in your eyes, not even they will get into the kingdom of heaven. Your holiness must surpass theirs. 
In other words, they got caught up majoring on the minors. They failed to lead God's people. They failed to love them well. And later in chapter 23, Jesus has quite a few words for them. I think that our hope would be that when you see groups like the chief priests and the scribes, our hope would be that when they came together, we would have some wonderful example to follow, some paradigm for holiness. But what do we get instead? Jealousy. These guys are jealous. They hate that the children are shouting praises to Jesus. Verse 15, they became indignant. I like the way the King James Version says it. They were sore displeased. They were incensed. They were angry at this. They did not believe that Jesus should receive such praises. Hosanna to the son of David. That's a phrase that's loaded with meaning. Remember, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the crowds chanted this at him. Hosanna essentially means save us. It's like a prayer request. And son of David, well, that's an acknowledgement that Jesus is from the kingly line of David, God's promised Messiah. And man, that made them mad. Jesus is not the son of a king. He's the son of a carpenter. He's from backwater Galilee. And if it's not enough that he's stirring things up back there, he's getting the crowds all whipped up here in our city. And he's doing it as he comes through our gate and down our road to our temple. This is our turf. And he wrecks our system. And he touches the lame. And he heals the blind. And he receives praise from kids. Do you see the contrast between these religious leaders and these children? The children shout praise. The leaders shout anger. The children worship in the temple. The leaders complain in the temple. The children get Jesus right. The leaders get Jesus wrong. The children are focused on Christ. The leaders are focused on themselves. But the children fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. And the leaders, they fail to understand the very thing they ought to have been experts in, the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus replies, Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? Our Lord is a a man of fearless courage. And you hear that in these first four words again. And he's a little sarcastic too in what he does here. Remember, he's speaking to the chief priests. These are the religious leaders of the day. And he's speaking to the scribes. These are experts in the law. And he asks them, have you never read? The rest of that verse then is a quote from Psalm chapter 8. It's verse 2. And in that psalm, God is praised for for the splendor of his creation. And there's this acknowledgement that even God can bring forth praise from, from infants and nursing babies. And the point Jesus makes to these religious leaders, to these scribes, is that if God can even bring forth praise from infants, how much more from you? 
they lacked the insight that even babies possess. That's to say that Christ can take even the smallest words and he can take the most basic concepts and he can turn that into praise for himself. Praise flows from a heart of gratitude. It's fundamental to our faith. Return to the basics. Celebrate God's love for you anew this morning. Praise God for the salvation that he's given you. Return to where you came from. To say it another way, to couple it with our first point, stay low, stay humble. Be thankful for the most basic things about our faith. Never forget what God did to save you. Never forget what he saved you from. Never forget what he kept you from when he saved you. There's this wonderful quote from from Matthew Henry. Um, It's about humble gratitude. It works well with our first and our second point. Matthew Henry was uh, an English minister in the late 1600s. And he writes this after being robbed. He, He just got robbed and he sits down and writes this. He says, I thank thee first because I was never robbed before. Second, because although they took my purse, they did not take my life. Third, although they took my all, it was not much. And fourth, because it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. We have to appreciate how he found gratitude after being robbed. I mean, that in and of itself is probably difficult to do. But immediately what he did is he turned his eyes to the Lord. And he was able to find at least four things there to be thankful for in light of this terrible event. I think there's just something healthy for us to, to trim back the layers. Our lives are so full and they're so busy. It's nice to trim back the layers and, and be thankful to God for the many ways that he blesses us. Getting back to the basics. Well, so far this morning we've seen a few of those basics. It's this idea of having a humble heart, a humble attitude, and also a heart filled with gratitude or praise for God. Our last one comes in verses 18 through 22, a third basic of our faith, and it is a fruit-bearing faith. It's a faith that bears fruit. Picking up in verse 18, we'll continue. Now in the morning... When Jesus was returning to the city, he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, how did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. I think uh, many see this as an unusual event in the life of Jesus, but I assure you that it does have a point. Um, Verses 17 and 18 revealed to us that Jesus had been traveling in and out of Jerusalem during his final days around this city. In his last few days, he certainly spent time in Jerusalem during the day, and at night he would retire to Bethany. 
And many believe this little town, just a few miles outside of Jerusalem, it was uh, occupied by his friends who he stayed with, Mary, Martha, and recently resurrected Lazarus. Well, on his way back into town on Tuesday morning, he sought food from a fig tree. Now, we know that it's Tuesday morning because the Gospel of Mark tells us both Matthew and Mark record this particular event. And Mark's account is going to be longer. His purpose for recording this withering of the fig tree is different than Matthew's. Mark, I believe, is trying to teach us of a progression of the judgment of God. On Monday, Jesus comes into town. He sees the fig tree. He curses it. He then clears the temple of Haglers. On Tuesday, they pass by the tree again. It's now withered. But you notice that Matthew records it a bit differently. Matthew, I believe, seeks to show us the immediate nature of God's judgment. And what he does is he condenses all of these events, that span of time, into one shorter, sharper account. Now, these two accounts don't contradict one another. In fact, they go together. I believe that that accusation can be made to the Bible. Oh, well, Matthew said it this way and Mark said it that way, so the Bible isn't true. I would say instead of that, two divinely inspired authors, Matthew and Mark, they record the exact same account, but they do it from two perspectives. And by the way, this happens all the time in in modern day news reporting. The same event can be seen, but you could read it in different newspapers or different websites, and it can be explained in very different ways. This will happen with many events by the way, with the life of Jesus, not only this one, but if you would read different events throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the same event can be told in different ways. Here, Jesus is traveling along, and he looks to get a bite to eat, and he sees this fig tree. We know that it's late March because of Passover and the time when Jesus would be crucified, and fig trees, at least in some varieties, will produce fruit at the same time they produce leaves. So when Jesus sees leaves, what does he think? Oh, there must be fruit. Based on appearances, follow me with this, we'll come back to it. Based on appearances, the tree should be fruit-bearing. Now this fig tree, this idea of a fig tree, it appears throughout the Old Testament. As early as Genesis 3, God sews together fig leaves to cover Adam and Eve. And throughout the Old Testament, especially for the nation of Israel, the figs symbolize all kinds of things, from from prosperity and security and even other things. Uh, Jeremiah 24 tells a very interesting, uh, or he uses a very interesting uh, picture to, to make a prediction. God gives the prophet a vision, gives Jeremiah a vision. And there's two baskets of figs. One is good and one is bad. And this good basket of figs are exiles who go to Babylon. God promises to protect those exiles and bring them back to the land. Those would be the obedient people of God. They are the the good figs in the vision. Well, there's a bad basket of figs, and they are sent to Egypt. And that was a picture of God's people who were not obedient to God by going into exile, but doing things their own way. They had their own ideas of how they would follow God and what their religious worship might look like. 
here, Jesus uses this imagery of figs again. And despite appearances, despite the leaves that indicate there ought to be fruit, there was none. The leaves were unproductive. The tree is unfruitful. Despite even, remember this magnificent city of Jerusalem, the beauty and splendor of the temple complex, the religion of the people, still the tree bore no fruit. And some are going to view the application of this, not only to the nation of Israel, but even more narrowly to the religious leaders. These religious leaders, these Remember, the, the chief priests, the scribes, they, they were partnering with those hagglers in the marketplace. They hated the praise given to Jesus. We just saw that. They didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah of God. So there's a, a picture to be observed here. That just as that fig tree was, was cursed, as she shone uh, leaves but bore no fruit, so too would the nation be cursed. Though she shone leaves and things looked good, yet she bore no fruit, she would be cursed. You can see then how short the application is in this passage. For you and I, if we profess faith in Christ, we ought to bear fruit. The judgment that came upon the nation, the judgment that came upon her leaders, this is a warning for you and I as believers to not merely profess faith, to not merely show some leaves, but, but, to, but to produce fruit as well. This, by the way, has been a message that Matthew's been preaching throughout his gospel. Back in chapter 3, verse 8, it was John the Baptist who yelled, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In chapter 12, Jesus would teach, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad, then it's fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. And again, Jesus would say in the parable of the soils, on the one to whom the seed was sown, on the good soil, this is the man who bears the, excuse me, who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit. And I say this because bearing fruit is fundamental to our faith. It's what we do as believers. We profess faith in Jesus and we bear fruit for Jesus. We profess faith in Jesus and we bear fruit because of Jesus. You see, the human being is is always producing fruit in accordance with his or her nature. The task of the believer is to produce fruit that is in accordance with that new nature, with the Holy Spirit-driven nature. And if we're having a hard time identifying that fruit or bearing it this morning, we need to get back to the basics. To those early days when we came to faith in Jesus. To be careful not to let our faith wither. I think it's easy to make our relationship or allow our relationship with Jesus to become just just a religion, just, just a system, just a thing that we do. I feel that danger in what I do for a living. I'm blessed to spend a a lot of time in the Word of God week in and week out. But I gotta be careful that I don't let it become a job. I know I've been guilty of that in the past because it's not a job. It's not a religion. It's a relationship with Jesus. And that might look a little bit different in how we bear fruit in our different vocations and our different seasons of life. 
But all of us, on some level, ought to be bearing fruit. It's a basic. It's a fundamental of our faith. Well, in conclusion this morning, this is a football. (laughs) Fruit-bearing faith, grateful praise, and bold humility. You know, when Lombardi took his team back to the basics, he did it because that team needed it. Of course, you know that they were seasoned professionals and that they were veterans of the sport. But what I didn't tell you is that they lost the big championship just months earlier. They made it to the conference game, but the championship is a lot like the modern-day Super Bowl. In that game, they made it, but they lost it. And then that game is very interesting. They had more yards. They had more first downs. They blew the lead in the fourth quarter. So what did Lombardi do? He took him back to the basics. And the season after he introduced this way of coaching, they went on to win the championship game 37 to nothing. Lombardi would win five championships in the next seven years. And he never coached a playoff loss or a losing season for the Packers as their coach. You know, I know many of you have been believers for many years. And you've walked with Christ for as long as you could probably remember. This morning you're coming in here seasoned. You're veterans. You've traveled many miles of road with your Lord over the years. You've had ups and downs and you've had everything in between. This morning, remember the basics. Don't move off the basics. I can't promise you you'll have an undefeated season for the rest of your life. But I can tell you, that when you hit a skid, you're going to have what you need to get through it and to keep going. Because when you began, it was you and Christ and the basics. And it's you and Christ and the basics to continue. Let's pray. Father, your word and our understanding of it Lord, it is unsearchable. There's a complexity. There's a deepness. In some ways, we will never know you on this side of this life or this, on this side of heaven in this life. But Father, we're thankful too that you've given us a simplicity. There are things in your word that are, are basic to our faith. They're easy to understand. And I pray for us that we would be able to, to return to the basics anew to not move off of them, but to remember that that through them, you grow us and you make us more advanced and more mature. Well, thank you, Father, for this congregation and the wealth of maturity and wisdom that exists here. I pray, Father, that you would bless us, bless us with the basics. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.